turn to Galatians 3. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in our lobby uh, that you can use. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift uh, to you. Um, This is kind of a wild week, wasn't it? I'm not sure anybody saw, if you, last Sunday, if you would have said, hey, a week from now when we get together, here's everything that's going to happen. I don't think any of us could have predicted what's unfolded. And so I can't think of a better thing for us to do than for God's word to speak into our lives, to give us instruction, to give us wisdom, to give us clarity, to give us insight, to help us understand and to, and to, to make sense of Uh, Some of the things, in fact, in God's providence, uh, we're at a text that I think will be very, very helpful to us, at least where we're going to finish. Really, really helpful for us uh, in light of what we've seen this week. And so last week, obviously, we stepped away from the book of Galatians for a week to uh, spend some time in Luke 24 and and really help to prepare us uh, to look rightly around the election and in light of what would happen. And uh, so as we come back to Galatians, maybe just for a moment by way of introduction, let me talk about where we've been in the book and then uh, where we're going in the book. And so uh, over and over and over again, Paul is writing to this church that is really struggling to uh, understand the fullness of the gospel. They're they're struggling to really live in light of uh, gospel truths and, and what's going on. And instead, they're uh, they're being um, seduced into uh, these things that false teachers are teaching about works and the law and the necessity of doing things and, and, uh, <clears throat> in order to be saved. And so in the first few chapters, Paul has this really heavy emphasis uh, on salvation and faith alone through Jesus alone, this really heavy emphasis on, on the cross and Jesus' death in our place, and this really heavy emphasis that, that you and I are justified, that our standing before God has nothing to do with what you and I have done, but with, it has everything to do with what Christ has done on our behalf. And so over and over and over again, he just keeps hammering this nail. And then this week and next week, we'll, we'll see as, as Paul moves towards this idea of engaging the law, what was the purpose of the law, um, and then also the, this, the promise, the promise that God gave to Abraham, which, which preceded the law and its place in salvation and redemptive history. And we'll see that, that this concept of God's family will be really, really prominent this week and next week. And then you get to chapters five and chapter six, and, and Paul just gets really, really practical. Like nuts and bolts, rubber to the road. Uh, here's what it is to be a Christian and live as a believer and, and function in this way and all these different things uh, that, that begin to play out in that uh, respect. But for this morning, I want to focus our attention. Chapter 3, uh, we're going to start in verse 10 in terms of preaching. In a moment, though, I'll actually start in verse 7 where we read. And, and let me just direct you to chapter 3, verse 7 for a moment. We were here a couple weeks ago. Paul says this, he begins this argument that really runs through the end of chapter 3. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham, right? This is what makes you a son of Abraham, which is really a son of God. And and, and I'm pointing this out because there's a progression in our text that as we move through, I want you to see it. He talks about being a son of Abraham. He talks about offspring. He talks about the promise. He talks about uh, the guardian. And and then if you flip over, let me just show it to you right now so we're clear on this. Look at chapter, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This dynamic of family, being a son of God, being a child of God, a daughter of God, that that it begins with the son of Abraham, and then almost in a sense, it seems like we back away from that. But all Paul is doing is he's walking us through the history of Israel and moving us to this point where we recognize that you and I are, in fact, sons and daughters of God if we are found in Christ. 
And I say that to say, here's really the, the main idea, the thrust of where we're going this morning is this, that in Jesus we are made a child of God. If you're in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God. Title of the message this morning is Becoming a Child of God. And in that, I don't necessarily mean the process or, or the steps that we move through, though there's a piece of it, but, but helping us to understand this is what makes you and I a child of God. And while it's not explicitly stated in the text, no doubt this is the emphasis of where Paul is moving us towards. So with that, I'm going to start in verse 7, just because I want us to see the progression. I'm going to read through the end of chapter 3. I would encourage you to follow along as I read this out loud. Here we go. Galatians 3, starting in verse 7, says this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying... In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And now he's going to contrast that with what we see in verses 10 through 14 and where we're going to really begin our focus this morning. It says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and over and over again in these next few verses, Paul is going to appeal to various places in the Old Testament to drive home his point. It says this in verse 10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's a reference to crucifixion there. Verse 14 so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now Paul's saying, hey, let me, let me give you an example here, guys, in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, long, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So then the million dollar question is, why the law? Right? If, if we've got this promise, why does the law exist? Well, Paul answers that. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteous, righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ, having put on Christ... There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
And before we go any further, I want to pray, and typically we'd pray for another church in the area. I think it's fitting this morning that we would pray for the church uh, in Spain uh, as a whole, having Francis and Natalie with us, and uh, certainly thinking about some of my other friends who are there uh, planting churches as, as well. So why don't you, let's pray. Uh, we'll go before the Lord and pray for our time, and we'll pray for the church in Spain as well. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you uh, that, that we have brothers and sisters around the world. We thank you, God, that uh, as I think about the church in Spain and I think of uh, the Arjonas, I think of Dan and Anna, I think of Hans and Jennifer and, and others who are laboring, honestly, in a field that's so incredibly difficult, so hard, and the work is, is, is so arduous, and it seems like there's so little fruit. And yet, God, we pray, we pray that they would be encouraged today. We pray that they would be encouraged this week. We pray that you would give them uh, th th this glimpse, this sense into what you are doing. That they would see your hand at work within them. God, thank you, thank you, thank you that, uh, that you are actively at work there in the same way that you are actively at work here. God, we pray for us that as we open your word, we pray that as you speak to us on uh, th th this idea of, of, of who we are in you, that we're your sons and your daughters, that becoming a child of God and living in your family, that you would give us uh, eyes to see this truth, that you would give us wisdom. God, you'd give us courage uh, to, to respond in whatever way you may be calling us to. God, maybe there's some areas of conviction where we've, we've been outside of what it is to be your child. Maybe we've acted in a way that's unbefitting of, of our Father's name. And so in that, we pray that you would convict. God, we thank you that you forgive and uh, that you would restore us. But God, we pray now that your spirit would have the freedom to move and work in and amongst us in a way that only you can. So Jesus, come have your way with us. Come speak to us. Come do the work that only you can do. And we just pray this all in your name, Lord. Amen. Becoming a child of God, uh, right? In Jesus, you and I are made children of God. Three things in the text I want you uh, to see this morning. Let's start with this first one, this idea of becoming a child of God, is we gotta understand some things about the law. And uh, what we see first in verses 10 through 14 is this, is that we would understand the law as a curse. If we're gonna become a child of God, we gotta put the law in its proper context. We gotta put it in its proper place and recognizing that Paul says not once or twice, but actually the word curse shows up five times in verses 10 through 14. Right, over and over and over again, driving home the reality of this curse. Now again, keep in mind the context. He's saying, hey, you, got, you guys are sons of Abraham. You're, you're sons of God, not because of what you do, not because of the works that you're doing, but because of who you are in God, because of what Christ has done for you, right? Part of the false teaching that existed there was this notion or this idea that, hey, you can become a son or you can become a daughter if you do these things. I mean, is that how it works in your home? You can keep my name so long as you do these things, right? Maybe sometimes in, in, in our uh, not as great moments of parenting, we've defaulted uh, to that position. Hey, you don't get to bear the name if you're gonna act like that. But in most, if not all, of our families, we don't have some condition that you're only a part of it if you do certain things. You're born into that. You're a part of it. You're a son or a daughter. And yet this is what this false teaching was promoting. You become a son of God if you do these things. Even though we don't see that anywhere else in humanity or the created order. And so understanding the law of a, as, as a curse. Now there's a progression. And there's an argument that Paul is making so here's the primary point that he's, he's driving in verses 10 through 12. It's the insufficiency of our works. 
Part of the law as, as, as a curse is recognizing your works, my works, are simply insufficient to make us right before God. I mean, that's what he over and over and over again is talking about is that we're justified, that my standing before God is made right because of what Christ has done for me and the insufficiency of our works. And so notice the, these three points, so to speak, in verse 10. He says, for all who re rely on the works of the law are under a curse. There's, there's your kind of your main idea. The law is a curse. You want to live under the law? Fine. You're cursed. <laughs> Go, you're loved. Have a great week, right? I mean, that's just, no one wants to walk out of here being cursed, but that's what Paul's talking about. You want to live this way, you function under a curse. And then notice he begins to build on that. And quoting from Deuteronomy, he says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The insufficiency of our works. First point Paul makes is this, is that if you don't do all of the law, you're guilty. If you don't do every piece of the law, you are cursed if you don't abide by every last point of the law. You follow every last thing. that There's like 613-ish laws. And if you broke one of them, you were guilty of the whole law. So try to wrap your mind around this for a minute. It's like, well, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I go to church. I read my Bible. I take Sabbath. And God's like, yeah, but you planted the wrong seed in the wrong field. Boom, guilty, right? And that's it. Entirely guilty. Now, now how many of you want to live under the weight of constantly having to be perfect. I won't make you say it out loud, but I'm guessing most of us would have failed sometime between when the alarm went off and when you walked in the door this morning. And that's being pretty generous because most of us probably failed between the alarm went off and about three seconds later after we recognized that the alarm had gone off, right? And yet the reality of living the entirety of your life without ever failing. He, Paul's, 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 point, Paul's point, point is, you've got to do it all or you're guilty. There has to be perfect adherence. I can't think of a better way to crush someone's soul than to expect them to live like that. And so he's like, listen, you've got to do it all or you're guilty. His second point, look at verse 11. He says, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And then he quotes from Habakkuk 2 and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. See, we're not justified by our works, by our faith. Essentially what Paul is saying is he's going, hey, even if you could live by the entirety of the law, it doesn't even matter because it won't justify you. So just imagine that you had spent years of your life laboring uh, to, to live under the law. It's like, I'm getting it, I'm getting it, I'm getting it. And then Paul, right, probably just like putting his arm around you and be like, hey, that's great. It doesn't matter. It's a waste of time, man. Because you're still not justified before God. It's only your faith that justifies you. See, your, your works can never justify you. Now, you have to remember, you have to understand the legal implications here, that, that I'm, I'm justified or my standing before God as a judge. God is the judge. You and I are in court. And we know we're all guilty. We know we're all guilty, but we're declared righteous. Why? Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done. See, this is where I think so often we get confused about the law and the purpose of the law and how it intersects with our life and what that looks like. We have this wrong thinking of the law that, that okay, yeah, I recognize there's sin in my life. I recognize that I've done wrong. I, I recognize that I have this issue over here. 
And then what, what do we do is we go, <clears throat> I'll just pile up stuff over here and we'll cancel out the debt. I'll do enough good to, to, to counterbalance or, or, or to, to zero out the bad. But you have to understand, listen, you have to understand, our works were never meant to function as a payment for our sin. You still have debt over here. And, and the mistake that we make is thinking that I can work and work and work. And so, so let me try to illustrate this for a minute. Let's say um, I lied or I stole something or, uh, right, that I have sin over here. I am in debt to God because of my sin. Can we, can we agree on that? And the mistake that too often we make is like, okay, well, I have to be good or I, I got to go one for one or, yeah, it's sin. So we got to go three to one, right? And so I got to do three good things. And so like we just try to start piling up all the good works and like this is going to make me right and if I do enough, it'll tip the scales. Here's the problem. You're dealing with the wrong currency. Let me try to illustrate this. Imagine you go to the grocery store and you got a big old cart full of groceries and, right, ladies ringing stuff up and ding, ding, ding. Okay, you get to the end and she's like, that'll be 112.74. Now, typically, you're going to pull out your wallet, give her a credit card, debit card, cash, whatever it is. But imagine, right, in this illustration, you pull out like a car battery. Thump! Here you go. What's that? That's my payment. You got cash. You got to, we can't take that. Well, it's roughly the equivalent value. No, no, it doesn't matter. We can't take that. I, I, I need currency. You, you could pull out gold coins. Maybe even more valuable than what you own. She's like, I, I can't take that. I, I need cash. I need a card. Dealing with different currencies. What is the currency with which sin is dealt with? It's blood. That's the currency. Hebrews 9 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. That, that's why the Old Testament seems so bloody and gory to us. It, it, it's not that, that we're removed from the reality of that. We're just removed from, from, from it being right in front of us all the time. The sacrifices of the animals weren't meant to ultimately be sufficient. It was meant to point us to the cross. And we make this mistake of, well, I'll just pile up the works and God's shaking his head going, you could, that doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Because you still have this debt over here and your works could never pay for this. Wrong currency. The Bible tells us that all of us have this debt. That sin is our debt. That we live in that debt of sin. And, and it, it's, not, it's not like, well, yeah, there was that one time when I was two, when I mouthed off, but I've been killing it ever since. It, nope. It's like, yeah, I, there was that one time when I was two, and then there was like eight million other times when I was two, and then every other time since then. Not, not only do works not satisfy this debt, I'm not even sure we could work enough to even be in the ballpark with respect to our sin. We're dealing with the wrong currency and what Paul is telling the people and what we need to hear is, listen, the righteous shall live by faith. Your works can't justify you. I can't work to make it right. I still have this debt. And thinking that, that you start to see the curse in this now, right? To try to live under that and to try to think that maybe somehow I can, I can make this work for me. Not justified by works, but by faith. And then look at verse 12, what he says. 
He's like, well, listen, you got to keep all of the law, and it doesn't even matter if you do um, because you're not justified that way. And then you get to verse 12, and he says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith. Paul makes this clear distinction that the law is not of faith. You can't be justified by it, and and it wouldn't have mattered because it never would have been sufficient. And the whole point of his argument is to lead you and I to a place where we go, we're toast. There's no way of remedying this debt over here. That's his whole point. And that's the beauty of what we see in verse 13 and 14 is we see the sufficiency of Jesus' work. Look at what he goes on and says. Right, in contrast to the insufficiency of our work, Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's the sufficiency of Jesus' work, right? Where where the law is a curse verse, where the law um, keeps you and I at a place of insufficiency, the work of Jesus is sufficient for us. It makes us right with him. It covers our debt. It cancels our debt. It frees us from the burden and the wrath and the consequence. I want you to notice two things here in verse 13 and 14 with respect to the sufficiency of Jesus. And as we talk about these two things, let them... Maybe let your understanding of these things and of God's work on your behalf, uh, if nothing else, be a reminder of what he's done, but hopefully by God's grace gives you great encouragement, uh, leads you to worship, or that there would be thanksgiving and gratitude on behalf of what God has done for us. So notice these two things. First of all, the sufficiency and substitution. Jesus' sufficiency and substitution. He took your place. He took my place. He took our place. Look at what Paul says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became the curse that you and I should have been. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 20, it says, The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus took your place and he took my place on the cross. He did not deserve that, though you and I most definitely did deserve that. His sufficiency and substitution. But notice also what we see in verses 13 and 14. We see his sufficiency and atonement. That he paid the price. He paid the price of our sin. That the the sin has to be judged. The sin has to be dealt with. It has to be paid for. And Jesus paid that price on your behalf and on my behalf. He told us in Mark 10, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. I'm going to pay for this. In 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is his death on the cross. This is the atonement, him paying the price. I think most of the time, right, most of the time when we think of the atonement, we tend to go to the physical aspect of the atonement. We think of Jesus' pain. We think of his suffering. We think of how much it hurt. We think of the fact that he bled. We think of the fact that he died. And those are all very, very real components of what unfolded on the cross. And I think partly, part, part of the reason that we think that way 
is because we can identify with that. We, we can relate to that. We understand that. But I don't think that's the most prominent aspect of the cross. I think that the far greater struggle, the far greater issue wasn't the physical pain. I think it was the fractured relationship that existed between the father and the son. I think it was the fact that as Jesus bore the wrath of humanity, that God turned his back, that God was silent, that God said nothing, that the perfect harmony that had existed throughout all of time between the father and the son was now shattered in that moment. For years, we've used the Jesus Storybook Bible with our kids. Um, that's a great, great resource, parents, if, you, if you're looking for uh, a good resource. And so on the particular story where they talk about Jesus' crucifixion and the wrath of God being poured out upon him, this is one of the lines. I, I have found this to be quite possibly the most profound statement with respect to the atonement. And of course, it comes from a kid's Bible. Okay, but here's what it says with respect to Jesus, right? Jesus is crying out and it says this, and for the first time and for the last, when Jesus spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. It should be us. It should be us that he's silent towards. It should be us that he turns his back towards but instead it's Christ bearing the wrath of God in our place. And the sufficiency of Jesus' work. Like the law is a curse. It was never meant to save us, to free us, to give us life. But when we attempt to live under the law, when we attempt to, to earn Jesus' favor, when we attempt to work our way towards him, we're essentially saying, yeah, I'll live under that curse. That sounds great. And God help us, God help us, this isn't how we're living, but we're living in the fullness of God's grace and his goodness and kindness. Notice this secondly, look at verses 15 through 24. What we see, Paul, Paul moves from the, right, becoming a child of God, there's gotta understand the laws of curse. You, you, you can't earn your way into God's family. Notice this secondly, <clears throat> that we would place our hope in God's promise. That we would place our hope in God's promise. What promise? Well, look at what he talks about. Verse 15, he's like, hey, let me give you an example even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. And so, so Paul's saying, listen, e even when guys, like two people, a, a man and a woman with marriage or, or, or two people make a business, when, when they make a covenant and it's ratified, that doesn't change. They, they don't start modifying it or adding things. Or it's like, that's fixed. And so even in our human-to-human -human interaction, if we can understand what happens when it's something between God and us, and so he points them not back to the time of Moses, but now pointing them again back to Abraham. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to the many, but referring to the one and to your offspring who is Christ. Paul's saying, D don't you get it? In Genesis 12, when he was talking to Abraham, he was actually pointing him to Jesus. In Genesis 15, when he's talking to Abraham, he was pointing us to Jesus. In Genesis 22, when he's taking Isaac up the mountain, he's pointing us to Jesus. He's the ultimate fulfillment. This is the promise that we hold on to. And he goes on and he says this in verse 17. This is what I mean. 
The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. We're placing our hope in God's promise. Notice, first of all, the surety of God's promise. The surety of God's promise. That his promise is sure. Paul's arguing, listen, you guys want to go back to the law. Let's go back further in history. Let's go back beyond that. Let's talk about this guy, Abraham. You ever heard of him? Of course, all of them are like, well, of course we've heard of Abraham. Yeah, God have anything important or crucial to say to Abraham? Well, yeah, you know, he talked about the promise. And, right, is that kind of a big deal? Yeah. And of course, he's lining them up. Part of what he's saying is, listen, that promise supersedes the law. Just because the law showed up later doesn't invalidate God's promise to Abraham. It, it, it's subjected to God's promise to Abraham. It, it falls under that. And, and it's not only that it came first, but notice what else he tells us in these verses. It's that that promise has been fulfilled. And that promise is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Now put yourself in these guys' shoes for a moment. And here's what you got to understand is that that promise to Abraham that was fulfilled in Christ was roughly 1,800 years in the making. And you thought the Cubs waited a while before they won something, right? It's not even 10%. 1,800 years. Roughly the time that you and I are alive to when, shortly after when Jesus walked the face of the same duration of time, just to put it in context. And yet all the while, the surety of God's promise was never in doubt, was it? I mean, we have to get what God tells us over and over and over again. If he tells us something, we can trust that it's going to happen. We can believe that it's going to be true. In Numbers 23, um, speaking of God, Moses tells us this, has he said it and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God's not going to say something and not do it. In Second Peter, Peter tells us this, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. I think for most of us, the rub isn't whether or not we believe God's promises. The rub comes in the timing of the fulfillment of the promises. I don't want to wait God, I want your promise to be true right now. 1,800 years. It's probably going to be a little while. And sometimes, sometimes it's, it's, we get frustrated because it's like, God, where are you or why aren't you doing this? And then sometimes when we think God should have answered the promise or we think God should have shown up, what, what begins to happen is we go further and further down the road and it hasn't happened. We begin to doubt God, are you really going to do this? You really going to show up? You really going to heal? You really going to save? You really going to restore? Can I really trust it? Well, has he not said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Now, sometimes, God, where are you? I love what Habakkuk 2 says, speaking of the vision and God's promise with respect to it. He says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. Can't you see Jesus be like, wait for it, wait for it, right? And then at the appropriate time, it's going to come. See, with respect to the surety of God's problem or promise, 
The problem is never whether or not it's going to be answered. The problem always comes down to the timing. Many of you have heard me say this before. I'll say it again. We'll say it over and over again because I think it's important to keep in front of us. God is never late, which we're so thankful for. Um, But it's kind of frustrating because he never shows up early either. He's always right on time. And that's it. So so God's a bad New Mexican because he's never late. All right? But he's not like the East Coast where you show up early. Always right on time. And so you think of your own life and maybe you're waiting for something to change. Maybe you're waiting for forgiveness or reconciliation or you're waiting for some kind of restoration or like, God, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing this? How come this isn't? Are you willing to hold on to the promises? Are you willing to trust God's timing? Do you believe that his promise is sure and it can be trusted? Right, the surety of God's promise Notice then in verse 19 and following, Paul begins to talk about, the, he's like, okay, well, well, the promise, right, certainly supersedes the law. And so then the question is like, well, why have the law? What's the point of the law? Why, do, why would God even give us this if we already had this promise? In fact, he asked that question in verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Okay, what's the purpose of the law? Well, listen, long story short, we could talk, we could do an entire sermon around the purpose of the law. Is it still relevant? Are we still under it? What does it mean? How do we live under that? What does that look like? Here's the purpose as far as Paul is, is concerned in Galatians 3. The purpose of the law is this, that it points out our predicament before God. It reveals the fact that you and I are sinful and we need a savior. It points out the reality that you and I cannot in and of ourselves earn our favor or our way back to God. That is the point of the law. It reveals our need. It reveals our insufficiency. It reveals our sinfulness. And as maybe depressing as that could be, then in verse 23 and 24, notice what Paul points out after that is the hope of our faith. Yeah, the necessity of the law is to prove to you that you can't do it. All right, that's not exactly very encouraging. Okay, but hold on, I'm not done. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. It's just watching us for a season until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. See, the hope of faith That a day is coming where justification isn't going to be tied to what I can do. It's going to be tied to what Christ has done in my place. So with that, let's just push further into this final thing here, starting in verse 25. Right? Becoming a child of God, understanding the law is a curse, right? I I can't earn it. I'm not going to work my way into God's family. That I got to place my hope in God's promise. I'm holding on to what God has told me to be true, and that's what I'm going to hang on to. Here's the final thing, that we would live in the fullness of God's family. That you and I would live in the fullness of God's family and all that that entails. Now, in verse 25... Paul makes a a little statement right at the front, but it's a crucial thing because up until this point, he's been talking about things in the past and history and way back in the nation of Israel and all kinds of Old Testament stuff. But in verse 25, he says, but now. It's present tense. 
it's relevant for this moment right here, right now, for the church in Galatia, for you and I, for anyone who would live from this point forward. Hey, you might want to pay attention to this. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And now he's like, let me tell you what it looks like to be a son of mine. Look at verse 28. And I want you to understand, before, before I read this, this is such a shocking and offensive statement in that particular day and age. And I would suggest to you that in many ways that this would be an equally shocking and an equally offensive statement in our day and age. Here's what he says. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ and you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. See, he's talking about what it is to be a child of God. What it is to receive the promise of God. Not, not, now we're not talking about sons of Abraham, now we're talking about sons of God. Sounds an awful lot like what we see in the beginning of John. In John 1 when he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, right, to be called children of God. And then he qualifies all of the ways in which that did and did not happen. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of the man, but of God. Essentially, that we had nothing to do with becoming a child of God. It's awesome. Now, I want you to notice two things here in the text, and I want to focus really around verse 28. Notice a couple things about God's family here, what it is to live in God's family. I think this becomes incredibly instructive for us uh, in light of what we've seen this week and in the previous uh, number of months leading up to this past week. Two things uh, that I'll say here, and, and then we're done. First of all, this. Living in the fullness of God's family demands unity across all lines. Living in God's family demands unity across all lines. I mean, he talks about gender lines. He talks about um, social class lines. He talks about ethnic lines specifically there. And if we have learned anything, 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 I think we learned an awful lot, honestly, this week about our nation. Most of what we learned probably wasn't that exciting for us, but if we've learned anything about our nation this week, it is that we are deeply, deeply, deeply divided over these things. And as sons and daughters of God, we should be the first, we should be the best, and we should do it the most where we are reaching across to bridge that gap. First and foremost, that should be happening in the church, that there would be unity across all lines, that, that, that we would see each other as brothers and sisters, literal brothers and sisters. Now, now right, brother, that, that goes both ways because um, there's... There's a faithfulness to family, right? Where it's like anyone can make fun of your family, or like you can make fun of your family all day, but if someone else makes fun of your family, like it's on, right? And so there's that faithfulness, but the, but the other side of that is like you want to fight and bicker and, and, and you'll go at siblings the way that you won't go at anybody else, all right? And I'm not, I'm not naive to that reality, but we should be the ones working to restore and bridge these gaps. And it has to start in the church, now, I'm not naive. I know that those gaps exist in the church collectively, and I know those gaps exist in our church. 
I wish it wasn't true. I would love to be proved wrong, by the way. But they're there. And, and, and to live and to function in God's family, there's no place for that. Right? God is saying, listen, there has to be unity across all lines. That, that, that when it comes to, um, right, he talks about Jew or Greek. Deep racial divisions in our country. You're fooling yourself if you don't think they're there. If you could legitimately look at me and go, Mike, I don't really think it's there. Then here's my assignment for you. Go find people who feel differently, ask questions, and say nothing else, and seek to understand. I think it'll open your eyes. You're crazy if you don't think this is, that our nation isn't deeply divided along these lines. And we have to be the ones to go, you know what? There's division there. Let's begin to bridge the gap. Social class. Deep divisions. We, we can't show up and go, hey, you know, that person's a CEO and, and that person's an engineer and this person's a maid. We can't identify people based on uh, how much they make, um, what society thinks of them. God looks at us as sons and daughters that all bear his image. There's deep divisions along social lines. Here, here's, here's usually for me a pretty good indication, not only for myself, but I watch it play out in our society all, all the time. How you know whether or not this is showing up in your life is pay attention to how you, peep, how you treat people in the service industry. When you go to a restaurant, um, the, the way you talk to a cashier, people that the function of their job is to serve others. Do you know their name? Do you look in their eye? Do you ask them about themselves? Or do you treat them more or less like a servant? It's not uncommon for me when we go out to eat with our family, I'll tell my kids, I want to know their name and I want to know the color of their eyes. Because I want my kids to treat that server with the same dignity and respect that they would treat anyone else, regardless of their profession or what they're doing. But you show up and you think someone's there for you, you've failed. Now, yeah, maybe the purpose of their job is to be there for you, but that does not make you better than them. Unity across all lines. In God's family, these distinctions should melt before the cross. And we should simply be a bunch of broken brothers and sisters who want to love our neighbors. I mean, that's what Jesus, right? The Good Samaritan, right? To, well, actually, he said um, to love God and to love your neighbors yourself. These are the greatest commandments. And the, good, good, the Good Samaritan teaches who's our neighbor? Well, who do you hate the most? That's your neighbor. Oh, and everyone in between. Unity across all lines. Here's the other side of this that we see. The distinction within us. There's distinction within us. You might be like, wait, 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 you just told us we're all one. Yeah, I understand that. But he, he, he drives home the fact that we're unified by highlighting the fact that none of us are the same. That we're still different. That we're not this homogenous group where everyone looks and acts and speaks and functions the exact same way. There's this incredible beauty that shows up in diversity. Okay, question. Would you like to live in a world where everyone looks, thinks, and acts like you do? 
Some of you, some, some of you are like, kind of like, you got to check your ego at the door, all right? Because some of you are like, I don't know, that sounds kind of cool. I'd kind of like it. It'd be super lame and super boring. And that's not meant as an insult. I'm just saying, man, you would miss so much. Because everything that you're not good at, everything that you don't value, everything that, that isn't as meaningful to you would simply cease to exist. One of the reasons, I mean, I love Pastor Randy for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons that, the, that I love our relationship is he's, we're so different on so many different levels, and I'm better because of him, and I would like to think that he's better because of me, but I so appreciate all of the things that he can do that I could never do. I look at his musical talent. My sister and I are probably the, the two least musically talented people that have ever lived. And so in heaven, we're going to have this awesome rock band, but it's only for people who were terrible here on earth. So if you're really bad, you're welcome to join me. You've got to be like horrendously bad. But I love that Randy's so good at that stuff. Right? We're all blessed because of the distinction and the diversity that, that shows up in that. I look at my family and I, I look at um, all the various gifts and passions and, and, and shows up, that, that shows up in that. And, and if you don't know, we have, we have identical twins. Um, and I've probably only heard about a million times that they're mini-me's. In fact, in fact, so uh, obvious is it that these are my children. When we were living in Arizona, Becky was, I was not with her. The, ki- the, the twins were probably two or three. She was at like some playground or something. And someone who did not know her but knew my family walked up, looked at the kids and said, those are Mike McDonald's kids. <laughs> and she was like, yes, they are. They're also my children. They're as much mine as are his. All right. Um, and then we have a third little boy, Davis. And Davis is nothing like his dad, and Davis is nothing like his twin brothers. Now, imagine for a moment if I went to Davis and I said, Davis, you have to look just like me, you have to act just like me, and you have to be just like me. Be utterly devastating. And it would be impossible. Physic- I mean, he physically can't change that. He's not wired that way physically. He's not wired that way emotionally. He's not wired that way relationally. And here's the thing. If I attempted to make him like all of us, we all lose. Because my family is so much richer because that little eight-year-old is so much different than everyone else. And I'm going to tell myself that on Tuesday or whenever when I'm having to discipline him because he's doing something obnoxious, right? No, we're blessed, right? We're blessed because... But see, that's the beauty of the diversity and the distinction that God puts into the church. Hear me when I say this. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Healthy churches, let's talk about healthy churches here. Healthy churches are unified. They are rarely, if ever, uniform. You feel me? Healthy churches are unified. We are partnered around the gospel. We're partnered around Jesus. We're partnered about what he's after. We're on mission, but we don't look the same. We're not uniform because God put certain gifts into me that he didn't put into you and he put certain gifts into you that he didn't put into this guy and he put certain gifts into that guy that he didn't put into her and right, so on and so forth. Healthy churches are unified, but rarely are they uniform. We must be unified, loved ones. We've got to be unified. And we've got to live in the distinction that God has placed in every single one of us. I said last week during the Q&A time, I, I think I don't have a lot of hope for our country politically um, and I felt that way last week, this week, that hasn't really changed, and, and I'm hopeful, um, but I'm hopeful because I see 
quite possibly the greatest opportunity that the church has ever had in our country. The doors are wide open. It's wide open. You don't have to tell anyone in America that we're broken or fractured. You couldn't say that six months ago. You, could, you couldn't talk about being afraid. You couldn't talk about concerns. You couldn't talk about eternity or hope. You can talk about it all day now. Incredible opportunity in front of us. And my exhortation for us is, listen, as children of God, let's go bridge gaps. Let's go bridge divides. Let's go love people who are very different than us. Not for the sake of, of, of better community or for greater politics or even American patriotism. Let's do it for the sake of the gospel. Let's do it because we have a loving father who has called people who are very, very different than he is. Thank the Lord that he still chose us and has made us sons and daughters. Let's become children. Let's live like children and let's invite others to be children of the great and glorious Father that we serve. Pray with me. Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you that, that in you there's no distinction. God, that in you the, the, the cross just melts away so much of, of the things that maybe we would put an emphasis on or think are crucial or important or prominent. God, we thank you for the work that you've done on our behalf. And God, as we think about what it is to be a child of yours, that we're, we're not under a guardian, we're, we're not looking ahead to something, that we're, we're actual children of yours. That you would help us, God, that you would help us to, to live in, in accordance and in line with what it is to, to, to be in the family of God. God, that we would recognize the deep divides, that we would recognize the hurts, that we would recognize uh, the, the, the great issues, but as the church, that we would not be scared, that we would not run away from this, that we would not um, seek shelter in people just like us, but God, that we'd, we'd go to the very edges and the very fringes in the same way that you went to the very edges and the very fringes and grabbed us. Would we go out and do the same? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your glory, Jesus, help us to do this. We pray this in your name. Amen.